Well, I hope you all had a good day, even in spite of uh, Michigan State's loss. I thought they were supposed to beat UConn, but anyway, that's the way the ball bounces, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the right metaphor, wasn't it? <laughs> well, as this morning, we're going to continue looking at Job. Um, I teach a class on the Hebrew text of Job, and I did my dissertation on it, and I've always been fascinated ever since I was doing my doctoral work because of a class I had on it. And, you know, just the amount of suffering he went through. It's just unfathomable. But yet, in the midst of it, we serve an all-wise God, and he did this for purposes of Job's spiritual growth. We have to look at that, but I hate to walk through that with him. Well, tonight, we're going to walk with him a little bit. So we're going to look at Job chapter 3. This morning, we looked at reverencing God in the midst of great loss. And remember, those two chapters taught us that the essence of godliness is wholehearted love for God above his gifts. Tonight, the tone changes entirely. I call tonight's message the outburst of godly suffering. The outburst of godly suffering. To understand, to set Job 3 up, let's turn to Job chapter 2. We're going to look at the final few verses of Job chapter 2 to see what prompts him to do what he does in chapter 3. Job 2 verse 11 Now, when Job's three friends heard of all his all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and so far the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, now, by the way, they would have been coming quite a distance. They're coming from the east. So they had to hear about Job's story. And by the way, they did not have telephones back then. So really, Job had been suffering for months. And the message gets carried to other friends. And eventually to these three friends. They hear about it. And so they get together and they plan to go see Job. Look at verse 12. So when they get close, they lifted up their eyes at a distance. And did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. With no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Now for seven days and seven nights rightfully, they just sit there and say nothing. Job is going to break the silence in a profound way with chapter 3. Here, we know that Job's initial response is very good. But the tone entirely changes here. So here, on the surface, 
when we look at chapter 3, it certainly seems like that godly man seems almost ungodly. Notice in this chapter, I will break it up in a twofold fashion. Verses 1 to 10, I call extended affliction provides an occasion for vain wishes. Extended affliction provides an occasion, an opportunity for vain wishes. Then in verses 11 to 26, we'll notice that extended affliction provides an occasion for unprofitable questions. We'll start with this occasion for vain wishes with verses 1 to 10. Notice there's an introduction in verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Now, by the way, we should notice here, Satan's goal was to get Job to curse God. Job does not curse God. Never does he curse God. But he edges towards that because he curses the day of his birth which is saying, God, you messed up. So, But he doesn't actually curse God. But, may I say, he starts down a slippery slope, but he doesn't go far. So notice, when he curses the day of his birth, notice verse 3, it gives us the subject of this curse. Let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a boy is conceived. Now notice, this shows really the extent of his anguish. I mean, it's too late to do this. He's alive. He's been around for a while. But yet, now he's saying, I wish I would never have been born. In fact, let that day perish. And the same thing with the night. That's the subject here. Notice his curse on his, the day of his birth. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. May that day be darkness. Let God above, let not God above care for it, nor let light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let Blackness of the day terrify it. So notice the, this is extreme anguish. You know, may that day just be dark. But notice he can even go further. Look at verses 6 to 9. He curses, he has a curse on the night of his birth. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that day be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for the light but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn. Well, did you notice that verse 8? Let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse today, those who prepare or rouse the great sea monster Leviathan, 
Now, may I suggest, do godly people curse the day of the birth? Did godly priests with Israel curse days of birth? Absolutely not. Who curses the days of birth? Remember Dion Warwick and the psychic hotline? I never doubted, doubted the number, but it was there because they'd advertised it on TV. May I say, that was a bunch of craziness, blasphemous, Joe cannot find anybody who would be a representative of God who would curse the day of his birth. So he resorts to the lowest thing. He says, let those witches, those necromancers, those are the ones who curse the days of birth. Let them curse it. Well, notice, Job sinks really low here. This is about as low as it can get. But notice the reason for cursing the day of his birth in verse 10. Because it, that is the day of my birth, did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide troubles from my eyes. Now, when we look at this chapter, this should remind us how low believers can go who are suffering. Friends, I've seen some believers go really low with excruciating suffering. But in all the occasions I know, nobody's even close to what Job was. So he slips really low. You know, and by the way, I should always also say, you know, maybe a Pastor Elwards told you this before. When we read Scripture... Scripture is all truth. We call that the script of truth. It describes truth. As a matter of fact, Scripture also recorded Satan's saying to God, I want to get him to curse you to your face. I believe that really happened. It's true. But does God want us to do that? Well, that leads me to the other side. In Scripture, we also have prescriptive truth. It tells us how to run our lives. It tells us what to believe. What Job is doing, it's there because it's descriptive truth. But it is not saying, go imitate them. We can tell this is not prescriptive truth by comparing it with other Scripture. Nowhere does God ever encourage us to do this. In fact, it's just the opposite. But... With it, you know, God records even lies. Remember in Genesis 3? Remember how Satan possessed that serpent? And the serpent tempted Eve? And she succumbed to the temptation? May I say, God's not telling us with Genesis 3, you can be liars. He's saying that really did happen. So it's there because it's descriptive truth. So I tell my students all the time, this is the Word of God. Every word of it's true. It's descriptive truth. But not all of it is prescriptive truth. That is telling us how to run our lives. 
Not all of it is the Ten Commandments. And by the way, we don't even keep those. We messed up on the Sabbath. We're on the wrong day here, friends. <laughs> but nine out of the ten work. They're reiterating the New Testament. There's a lot of commands in the New Testament. May I say, that's what God's telling us to live like. That tells us what we should do. But it is not saying that every word in the Bible is prescriptive truth. Every word is descriptive truth, but not all is prescriptive truth. May I say what we have here is descriptive truth. God is not telling us imitate Job with this. Well, having said that, we need to move on to the verses 11 to 26. Extended affliction provides an occasion for unprofitable questions. What's Job has cursed the day of his birth? That can't happen. So what he's going to do now, he's going to give a lamentation, a mourning about that day. So in verses 11 to 19, we see his longing for death at birth. In verses 20 to 26, he then has a longing for immediate death. So he starts with longing for him to have died at his birth. That can happen. So in the final part of this chapter, verses 20 to 26, he has a longing for immediate death. Let's look at the first part to see how low he does go. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did these receive me and why breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slipped with them, slept with them. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver. Or, like a stillborn, which is discarded and I, and I would not be. Now let me just pause here. In the New American Standard Version, they make an unfortunate translation by translating this Hebrew term as miscarriage. The term means stillborn. Now, there's a little bit of a difference. I think we mourn over both of them. But stillborn is worse. The mother's gone nine months. And she finds out her baby's dead. Well, that's pretty serious stuff. I've had some friends who've had stillborn children when I was in seminary. Well, those things happen. A miscarriage is not quite as traumatic, although it is traumatic. Um, you know, my daughter's had a few miscarriages, and they're traumatic. But may I say, to have gone nine months and have delivered a dead child, it's even far worse as far as the trauma goes. So, he's saying here, or... Like a, miss, uh, like a stillborn child, which is discarded. I would not be, I would have been better to be a stillborn child. 
as infants that never saw the light. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary art rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now, by the way, Job is not describing what it is like in Sheol. Now, I take it that the saints in the Old Testament, they went... Uh, into Sheol, and there was two compartments. You had one for the righteous, and then one for the wicked. The one for the wicked was suffering. I understand that when Christ rose from the death, he, he did away with the righteous side of Sheol. But notice, Job's not trying to describe that. He's just saying, he's just referring to death, not the afterlife. To look at those other types of things, you, look, you have to look at other sections of Scripture that deal with them. Here, he's just referring to death. I'd be better off dead. Well, this goes pretty low. You know, he... You know, he... Uh, I just can't conceive of how deep he was in his misery. But yet, you know, I don't think emotionally I can handle it. I mean, quite frankly, probably have a nervous breakdown. This is just tragic what he's going through in one sense. But in another sense, in the overall picture, it's good. Well, he can't get rid of the day of his birth. He, he couldn't curse it. He really can't mourn over it. It's already passed. So what's he do next? Look at verses 20 to 26. He longs for immediate death. Notice verse 20. Why is life given to him who suffers? And life to the bitter soul. You know what he's saying? Why is life given to Job? Why is life given to me? That's his point. Who long for death, but there is none. And dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Well, the primary aim is Job's referring to himself. But he's identifying with other sufferers as well. Well, this is a pretty bad uh, when you focus on God giving life to sufferers, and then they want to die like Job wants to die. He can't commit suicide. He knows that's not an option. What he could think of is that God should just kill me. And that's what he's really hoping for here. But notice, he goes on further in verse 24. For my groaning come at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. Job's describing what he's experiencing. You know, I groan at the sight of food. Now, Job's been suffering for a long time. I'll flip over to Job chapter 7. Notice in verse 3, 
So am I allotted months of vanity or futility? And nights of trouble are appointed me. Did you notice he had been allotted months of suffering? So this is something that just did not go away. By the time the friends would have heard about Job, gotten together, get everything prepared for the trip, and then travel. This may have been as much as a year or so. So he's really suffering. Remember, he's got the potsherds. He's trying to scratch the boils off. So this is a this is a, a deep turmoil. But notice further in verse 25 back in Job 3. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. May I say, I would say the same thing. What I fear, I hope doesn't come on me. In his case, it did. Notice verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Friends, when I read this, I am really discouraged. I'm almost depressed because of how bad it is. Well, the point of Job 3 is not that we should just feel sorry for him, but to learn from him. And by the way, the point of Job 3 is not that we should curse our existence, but to remind us that the best of all saints is still flawed by his depravity. The best of us. We all have the recesses of our hearts. And we have our besetting sins. We battle them. And often it's successful. But that doesn't mean that's always the case. But the point is, the mark of a Christian is that he still struggles to fight against them. But, in order to perfect us, God may bring some suffering in our life. Well, that's what he did with Job. What we're, what we're saying here is that it's only through this trial that God ordained for him that Job's faith could mature. This was his prescription, the suffering, to mature Job. I could say it this way. Godliness is not perfected without the trials of life. Godliness is never perfected without the trials of life. All of us suffer at one time or another. Uh, we see others suffer. It hurts when we see our children suffer. Our grandchildren. Friends, life has a lot of suffering. But yet in the midst of it, God rose up a man by the name of Job. A man who was extremely godly. And he puts him through this period of suffering. And he does grow by it. But, 
this was also written for our edification so that we learn that godliness is not perfected without the trials of life. That's what helps us grow in grace. Otherwise, we might become arrogant. So let me draw three lessons from this chapter tonight. First, in the midst of suffering, a godly person is capable of seeking to great emotional depths. Let me say that again. In the midst of suffering, a godly person is capable of sinking to great emotional depths. However, with this lesson, we should understand that what Job says in this chapter is not what God desires for his people. Even in the most troublesome periods of life, but God realizes that we need it. We should recognize when godly people sink to these emotional depths, God is always patient with the struggling believer. Even in their venting, provided their faith is still focused on Him. Now with Job, with all the suffering, never once does he doubt God's sovereignty. He's an absolute firm believer. And by the way, so are the three friends. They abuse God's sovereignty. Job, for a period of time here, thinks God's capricious. But as he goes through this, he finally comes to the conclusion at the end of the book that this was right. Flip over to uh, Job chapter 40. I do want to leave you on a positive note. After Job goes through his suffering, contrary to what the friends thought, they never thought God would appear. But God does appear. He appears because He loves Job. He speaks, God speaks in Job 38 and 39. Then in chapter 40, verse 2, God says, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Notice Job's response. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing. Now, God's going to speak some more here. He gives a second speech that runs from chapter 40, verse 6, through chapter 41. But look at chapter 42, the first part. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared 
that which I did not understand. This things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. Now he's quoting what God, God said here. Verse 5. I have heard of you. This is Job responding. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. These thin pages are a pain in the neck sometimes. Notice verse 6, though. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job recognizes God was right. Now we know the conclusion. God's going to give Job ten more children. By the way, with that wife who spoke like a foolish woman. And he's going to restore his wealth. And he'll become a great man. But friends, he had to suffer first. Well, let me point out the second lesson here. People who are in the midst of suffering like Job need our compassion more than a theological discourse. People who are in the midst of suffering, who you and I may deal with, like Job, need our compassion more than a theological discourse. That is, I've seen Christians rebuke people who've been suffering. Friends, when they're in the midst of it, I don't give them a Bible lesson. I let them cry. Uh, I've never done it, but if I needed to, I'd cry with them. Try to share as much as I can in their grief. But, there are times for theological lessons, but that's not it. So people who are in the midst of suffering like Job, they need your and my compassion more than our theology. The third lesson and the final one. If someone as godly as Job needed suffering to grow, then so will we. Since we know the entirety of Job's story, we've looked at it. And I've told you about the conclusion where God restores his wealth, gives him ten more children. People, may I say, most of the time, the overwhelming majority of times, that does not happen. We should be satisfied with knowing God and know that He did this to help us grow. That's the point. See, Job wrestles with God. He becomes indignant with God. He challenges God to come before Him and provide some answers. But all his struggles are the struggles of a believer. That is why Job can be praised by God himself for saying the right things. At least he spoke with the right framework. His miserable friends did not. We did not look further. But the three friends are rebuked by God. 
Eliphaz the Temanite, he's told to go to ask Job to pray for him. And Job offers a sacrifice and prays for him. Now, these were the guys who were using their theology to beat Job. But in the end, God praises Job and he says, He calls him my servant who spoke of me what was right. Now, he did get in the flesh. But overall, he recognized that God was not a God who was up in heaven parceling out judgments when we do something wrong or giving us a reward when we do something right. God does not work that way. It's the overall course of our lives. And Job comes to that realization. Friends, the lesson we need to learn tonight is that for us to grow in godliness, we need to be perfected through the trials of life. It's just a fact of the Bible. May God grant that when this does happen, that we will have the grace to withstand it and to keep our focus on God and God alone. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the book of Job, for the significance it's had in my own personal life. Lord, I pray today that as we've gone through the first three chapters of Job, may this be profitable for edification, that we will wholeheartedly love you above all the gifts, and that we will, when we do suffer, we'll look on the end, and the end is knowing you and seeing you. I pray this, seal this to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.